Well, good morning and welcome to Theological Equipping Class. We are in a uh, little series on social and political theology, and today we're dealing with a pretty difficult uh, subject, both to hear and uh, to think about. It is the topic of uh, sexual assault. It is the topic of allegations of sexual assault. It's going to be related to feminism. It's going to be related to what is called the Me Too movement. We're going to talk about all these things, but let's pray before we do so because we uh, certainly need God's help on this. So let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word that tells us how to deal with the uh, issues going on in our culture, whereas we have a tendency to think that it's just some ancient book sometimes that might be uh, irrelevant to what's going on in things such as politics. It's not, that you have uh, given us the everything that we need so that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we pray that you'd give us wisdom as we uh, tackle this difficult topic. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we are doing feminism, sexual assault, and the Me Too movement, and uh, so this will uh, deal with some very adult themes. That's why we sent out a little parental advisory uh, if you have young kids, Uh, but we think this is an important topic, and it's something the Bible addresses, so we can't just skip over it. Now, before we get into the lesson, let me say something pastorally, okay? If you are someone who has actually been sexually assaulted, you need to hear that that is so awful that that was done to you. Okay? If you've actually been sexually assaulted with a biblical definition, you have been victimized. Somebody has harmed you. God is angry at that person's sin. Sexual assault is evil, it is bad, and it is sin. Okay? So you need to hear us say that right off the bat, that sexual assault is bad. If you have been uh, sexually assaulted, you need to hear that we love you. We are here to help you. We are here to offer counseling. We are here to pray with you. Whatever we can do to encourage you, we would love to be able to do so. So please hear that right out of the gate. As I critique things like the Me Too movement, you might feel as though I'm downplaying sexual assault or acting like it's no big deal. So I just need to start pastorally and saying that is obviously a big deal. Why are we gonna spend so much time in this lesson critiquing then the Me Too movement and feminism and some of these other things? Here's why. You don't have to spend as much time telling people that a certain thing is wrong when it's obvious that it's wrong. You have to spend more time telling people that a certain thing is wrong when it's more subtle. Uh, Remember, the devil appears as an angel of light. You always have to look out for those subtleties. Let me give you an example I think is helpful. If you think back to the Salem witch trials, Do you have to go and warn that culture that witches are bad and that witchcraft is condemned in the Bible? No, that's obvious. They all agree with that. What do you have to say to that culture? You have to say your witch hunt, your false allegations of witchcraft are the thing that needs to be critiqued. So that's why we're going to be critiquing this, uh, this topic, critiquing the Me Too movement and such, is because that's the side that people have a tendency to ignore. That's the side that people have a tendency to uh, not see some of the evil that's being snuck into the church under the banner of uh, feminism or the Me Too movement, okay? Additionally, this is going to be the second lecture that we've had on what is called identity politics. What is identity politics? It's where you do your politics not based on what's most constitutional, not based on what's best for everybody but rather by focusing on a particular identity group with which you identify, and that's how you do politics. You read everything through that lens, right? So if you're a part of BLM, that is identity politics. You are going to vote and you're going to do politics primarily or solely based on the race issue. Or if you are a feminist, as we will talk about today, feminism can mean a bunch of different things, Uh, you will do identity politics. You will not maybe vote based on what's most constitutional, what most uh, protects individual freedom, something like that, but really based on the uh, different women's issues. 
okay? Or if you are part of the LGBTQ community, that is identity politics because that's the way that you're gonna do politics. That's gonna be the primary lens through which you filter everything. Sometimes people make fun of Christians for being one-issue voters on the issue of abortion, but really, if you push people, you'll find that many groups are one-issue voters. They just pick different issues on which to uh, build their foundation. So, let's start with a brief history of feminism, and then we will get into sexual assault and the Me Too movement. Let's start with a brief history of feminism. Feminism is typically divided up by scholars into three different waves, and I've added a fourth one that we'll talk about as well, but let's start with the first wave. The first wave of feminism, by the way, if you're using the term, let me interrupt myself to say this, if you're using the term feminism or feminist today to mean somebody who simply thinks that men and women are equal, that is not at all what the term means, okay? If you're using that, you're about 100 years behind the culture of what the term means. So remember, terms change meaning over time. Uh, A racist today does not mean what it did 10 years ago. A feminist today does not mean what it it meant 10 years ago. An environmentalist today does not mean what it uh, meant 10 years ago, so terms change meaning all the time. Keep that in mind. But let's start with uh, the first wave of feminism. This happened in the early 1900s. It especially had a big movement here in the United States. And this is where women fought for equal social and political rights, especially the right to vote. So the main thing that you need to know about the first wave of feminism is where women are pushing for equal political rights. A few things to mention about the first wave of feminism. First of all, major leaders included Virginia Woolf, Elizabeth Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. Many of these women were also very much involved in trying to outlaw slavery, okay? So as you have the first wave of feminism uh, happening, they're also involved in two other movements, prohibition and trying to get rid of uh, alcohol and make it illegal because many of them are being abused by their spouse. Uh, And also, they are very much involved in uh, trying to make sure that African Americans get equal rights, which is a good thing, right? So uh, we don't want men beating their wives when they get uh, drunk, and we don't want, uh, you know, uh, black people to have less equal rights or something like that. That would be evil and sinful. And so uh, some of these women are involved in some very good causes. I would not say prohibition is the solution to that. I'm against prohibition. You should be allowed to drink alcohol biblically. Uh, But to try to get rid of the abuse is a good thing. Uh, when it comes to women being abused by their husbands. Uh, and these women were still very much uh, female. They were still, they, they looked like women, they dressed like women of their day, they acted like women. Many of them were uh, stay-at-home moms. Many of them were married. Many of them were uh, doing the things that you traditionally associate with women's roles. So the, the, the primary thing you need to know about the first wave of feminism is that it is primarily about equal political rights, Okay. The second wave of feminism is typically where you get a lot of the things that we think of regarding feminism today. This was in the 1960s, which is kind of the fault line of American history. And in the second wave of feminism, women fought to remove some of the social distinctions between men and women. And for progressive ideas such as homosexuality, abortion, the right to sexual promiscuity, and others. Whereas in the first wave of feminism, women fought for equality as women, In the second wave of feminism, the distinction between social expectations of men and women began to be blurred. So whereas the first wave was about political equality, the second wave is about blending the social distinctions between men and women. Some of the major leaders in the second wave of feminism include Simone de Beauvoir, uh, the famous uh, French philosopher, the author of The Second Sex, who's famous for saying that one is not born but becomes a woman. By the way, fun fact, Simone de Beauvoir was uh, married to another famous French philosopher, a guy named Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a very famous existentialist, and so they were kind of the philosophical power couple. Uh, they, have, uh, they hold 
most of their views are unbiblical and uh, really, really bad. They had an open relationship uh, kind of their whole life, uh, but you know, the French. So anyway, uh, major leaders include Simone de Beauvoir, Gloria Steinem, who many of you know who that is, and uh, Betty Friedan, the author of a book that was very, very popular called The Feminine Mystique. And what they're doing is they're trying to say there should not be social distinctions between men and women. Okay, that really the only difference between men and women is biological, and uh, all these social distinctions should not be there that that is oppressive to women. So let me read you a little, uh, little quote here from Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. The problem lay buried unspoken for many years in the minds of American women. It was a strange stirring, a sense of dissatisfaction, a yearning that is a longing that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban housewife struggled with it alone as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, she was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? So what Friedan is doing is she's tapping into that sense of dissatisfaction that many people feel. And by the way, that's not just with women. If, if you're a stay-at-home mom and you think, okay, I, every day seems monotonous. I'm doing the laundry, I'm taking care of kids. Is there more to life than this? That's not just something that, that women feel, that's something that men feel as they go to work and work all day on a computer and are bored to tears, and they think, is this all? By the way, just pastorally, the solution to your boredom, the solution to feeling like you don't have a fulfilling life, is not to get rid of good things that God has ordained. Rather, it's to find your fulfillment in Christ. Your job won't bring you fulfillment, it's not meant to. Your kids won't bring you fulfillment, they're not meant to. Your spouse won't bring you fulfillment, they're not meant to. Only Christ will bring that fulfillment. But what Friedan is doing is she's tapping into that sense of dissatisfaction and saying, the problem is social distinctions between men and women. There shouldn't be these differences, okay? This movement was not just pro-women, it was also anti-men. That's something to keep in mind. That makes it different than the first wave. This movement sought to define what it means to be a woman without reference to men, which is unbiblical. That was one of Simone de Beauvoir's emphases in her, uh, in her book. Now, realize that biblically, women are not to be defined apart from men because God has created these two genders, these two sexes, to complement each other. Genesis 2, 23 this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's the same way in Hebrew that she shall be called Isha for she was taken from Ish. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man or husband. Or more powerfully in 1 Corinthians, it says that man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. That is an offensive passage. If you just tweet that out, like you just mentioned scripture, people that claim to be Christians will critique you literally for just texting out scripture without comment, okay? We don't like what the Bible says on this. The idea is not that men generally have control over women generally, that would be awful. The idea is that a husband is the head of his wife, okay? That men are called to be the leaders, especially in the home and in the church. This movement, the second wave of feminism, produced some contradictions regarding the rights of women. So there's a lot of contradictions within the feminist uh, movement. I'll give you a few examples. First, some feminists say that it is empowering for a woman to own her sexuality, to have casual sex, to have abortions, or to be a porn star, okay? Some would say, go be a sex worker, go be a prostitute. You own your, your, your feminine sexuality. Others would say, are you insane? That is literally exploiting women for sex. So even in this movement, there's some contradictions on what is best for women. There's another contradiction on uh, understanding the essence of women. On the one hand, some feminists were seeking to downplay the differences between men and women. Some would say there aren't differences between men and women, they're only biological, not the way they think, not the way they relate to others, not the way that they respond to issues. 
On the other hand, some feminists were showing that women are less logocentric and rule-based than men and focused more on relationships and caregiving. This means that some feminists wanted to downplay the differences between men and women, and others wanted to emphasize those differences. So even within the humanities, you have this whole genre of, uh, you know, of literary criticism and such where you try to read a text through a woman's viewpoint, through, through a woman's eyes, if you will, kind of these uh, uh, feminist readings of scripture, feminist readings of the Constitution, feminist readings of whatever. And the whole reason that some feminists push for that is to say women don't read texts the same way as men. And so you say, well, wait a second, I thought the only difference was biological. You're also saying that it is, deals with logic, it deals with emotions, it deals with interpretation, and so there's some differences there within the movement itself. Additionally, this second wave of feminism, hear this, this is important, is when feminism became an explicitly left-leaning position because the domestic focus on caregiving and nurturing was transposed on to what they believed the government should do for its citizens. Okay? So you need to realize in the first wave, you didn't quite have the same far left-leaning politi- political push that you have in the second wave. Okay? If you think that the government's job is not primarily to protect individual rights, which by the way it is, uh, but you think instead it is to be like this mother and to tell people what is good for them and restrict their rights so that you can pursue whatever the government has told you it thinks is good for you, you're going to get more of a uh, state-controlled uh, kind of uh, culture. Third wave, feminism, 1990s, okay? This is where women of color fought for equal rights because they felt as though they had been overlooked by white women, okay? Now, this is interesting. Even within the movement itself, you had all, for all this time, you had white women saying, we are oppressed, we are the victim, no one's taking us seriously. And then Asian women, Latina women, black women said, hold on there, privileged white women, you've forgotten about us during this whole thing. That's what's going on in the third wave of feminism. These women of color believed that they had been underrepresented by white women. This was also true for women of other social classes and sexual orientations, okay? In the third wave of feminism, so the first wave of feminism, political equality. Second wave of feminism, getting rid of social distinctions between men and women. Third wave is about race, okay? In this movement, the primary victims of society were no longer the poor, but those who had what are considered unchangeable identities, Whereas women in the second wave of feminism saw themselves as victimized by men, women in the third wave of feminism used race as a way to show that they were further victimized. Let me just give you a quick pastoral word. Anytime you play the victim card, someone can out-victim you. Anytime you play the woke card, there is somebody who is more awake than you are. To quote Representative Dan Crenshaw, someone has it worse than you, even when you've been blown up in the face, okay? Because his buddy stepped on an IED and it caused him to lose his eye in combat. So keep that in mind when you play the victim card. Let, let me, here's something that I think is insane. Any time, most of the people that I've heard talking about being oppressed or being a victim or something like that are Americans, which is absolutely insane. If you are an American, you are the most spoiled, entitled, privileged group on earth. You are the 1%. Okay? The only reason you can talk about how victimized you are is because you have a job and you have money and the government doesn't lock you up for expressing your opinions and these kind of things. Go live in Rwanda. Go live in North Korea. Go live in Afghanistan. Go spend a beautiful summer in Juarez, Mexico, and then realize how overwhelmingly privileged you are if you're an American, period. We're one of the only places on earth where our homeless people are overweight and have cell phones. Okay? That's not the same as being homeless in Ethiopia. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying there are not people who are oppressed and I'm not saying there are not people who are victims, okay? That does happen. It happens a lot. 
What I am saying is, you need to, before you want to play the victim card, realize actually how privileged you are if you're an American, period, okay? So you need to keep that in mind. Then you get the fourth wave of feminism. Now, a lot of uh, people don't talk about this because this is kind of going on today. This is something that's new new in the feminist movement. Today, you have a possible fourth wave of feminism where transgender women, what is a transgender woman? It's somebody who is a biological man who is claiming to actually be a woman, is fighting for equal rights under the banner of feminism. Okay, so notice this. This is interesting. Transgenderism and feminism are ideologically opposed. They work together because they're both left-leaning groups politically, but they're ideologically opposed. Let's say that you're a woman and you fought your entire right, or your entire life rather, for women's rights, and all of a sudden, a man who lives to be 60 years old decides to transition and become a woman, and he says, I know exactly how you feel, sister. Does he? Does he know what it's like to be sexually objectified? Does he know what it's like to make less money for the same job? Does he really know? Or has he now taken the one thing away from you that you had? That's what feminists would say, a lot of feminists today, against the transgender movement. They would say, this is just one more thing that men are taking away from us. At least the one thing we had was being women. Now we don't even have that. We can't say no uterus, no choice, because you don't need a uterus to be a woman or something anymore. Okay? And so uh, feminism and transgenderism are ideologically opposed. In fact, the transgender community will call certain feminists a TERF, which is a slur. Okay? It stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminist. All right? A feminist that doesn't buy into the transgender movement. Because if you're a feminist, the transgender movement takes everything from you. Let's say that a guy lives 60 years as a man, and then he transitions to become a woman, and then he becomes the president of the United States. Have you had the first female president? The transgender community would say, absolutely. If you're a feminist, you say, you stole this from us. You st- the, the very reason that you use the word transgender woman means that you don't think it's the same as a regular woman, or you wouldn't use the term transgender. You wouldn't be pushing that. And so these two ideas are ideologically opposed, but that's what you're getting in the fourth wave. There is now the idea. So the first wave is about political equality. Second wave is about removing social distinctions. Third wave is about race. The fourth wave would say that the differences between men and women are not even biological. There is now the idea that men and women are not even different physically. This is seen in biological men competing in women's sports, okay? I was talking to a buddy of mine who is a uh, former Army Airborne guy, and he was telling me about this mission during Desert Storm where a group of Green Berets, Army Special Forces, are going in, and they're supposed to be dropped off at a certain location, and they're supposed to dig a hide site before the sun comes up so that they can be in the position that they need to for this mission, okay? However, something goes wrong, and they are dropped off anywhere between one and five miles away from where they're supposed to be, and they're carrying 175-pound packs, each of them. So they have to sprint at night for several miles carrying 175-pound packs, wearing boots, running on sand, and then get to their hide site and dig it out before the sun rises or they will be killed. And the guy was just making the point, how many women can do that? If one woman can do that, do you change the standards for army special forces? Yes, there's just a difference between men and women and it's not wrong to say that. To be physically different doesn't mean that one has more or less value than the other, but the fourth wave of feminism would say that there aren't even these physical differences. Well, that's feminism in a nutshell, and so I want to move on to sexual assault and the Me Too movement, okay? So let's talk a little bit about sexual assault and the Me Too movement. This, the, the Me Too movement, what, what are these movements? Okay, so here's what social media was designed for. Social media was designed for you to share pictures of your puppies 
or for you to share the, you know, David goes to the dentist YouTube video, or for you to, uh, you know, what a lot of Christians will do is they'll take a black and white photo of their Bible open next to a cup of coffee, even though Jesus says not to tweet your righteousness before men. It's, it's, that was what social media was meant for. It was meant for just these little fun things, but it's become weaponized, and certain social media movements now become political movements. So what someone will do is they will tag something with what is called a hashtag. I don't know why we call it that. It's just a number sign or a pound sign, but for some reason we call it a hashtag. And what it does is it creates this category where other people can tag that same kind of idea so everyone can be talking about the same issue. So when someone creates a hashtag, if it starts to gain momentum, it can become a movement and then it can become a political movement. So Black Lives Matter is not just a slogan, it is a movement. They have leadership, they make money, they are a political lobbying group. The Me Too movement, same thing, okay? Same, it is a political lobbying group. It's, they have websites and stuff you can go to. It's not just something people are saying on social media. So what we've seen is that social media becomes these actual social and political movements, and so we need to talk about what is called the Me Too movement. The movement began in 2006 when a lady named Tarana Burke used that phrasing on MySpace. You remember MySpace? Where you had like, uh, you know, you go to someone's MySpace page and it'd start playing a song really loud and they'd have like way too much stuff going on in their background or whatever. Well, this actually started back in 2006 on MySpace. Tarana Burke used this phrase, me too, as a way to sympathize with women of color who said that they had been sexually assaulted. So it started out as this way of saying, I understand your pain. I understand what you have gone through. I understand that this has been very, very, very difficult, Okay. Now, the movement, though, didn't take off in 2006. Most people didn't, hadn't heard of the Me Too movement before 2017. It was really the sexual misconduct allegations of Harvey Weinstein in 2017 that helped popularize the social media trend of placing a hashtag Me Too uh, after admissions of being sexually assaulted. Actress Alyssa Milano from shows such as Who's the Boss, Melrose Place, Charmed, and others helped popularize the hashtag in light of the Weinstein scandal. So when Harvey Weinstein was uh, accused of all these uh, sexual misconduct kind of charges, other women started coming out and saying, you know what, I have also been assaulted. I've had a guy take advantage of me. I've had these bad things happen. That's how the movement really began. So what I want to do is I want to mention what the movement tries to accomplish, but I also want to critique the movement. So keep in mind, even when people disagree with you pretty severely on political issues, you can usually agree on some things. We should all be able to agree that uh, you know, sexual assault is bad, actual sexual assault is bad. We should all be able to agree with that. The, the whole reason that I'm gonna take such a strong stance against the Me Too movement is, is, is this reason. Let's say I got a bunch of different Christians together in a huge building from a bunch of different churches, and I said, who in here thinks sexually assaulting people is good? Nobody would raise their hand. Okay? Nobody would raise their hand. That's so clearly an evil act that nobody would raise their hand. But if I got a bunch of different Christians from a bunch of different churches together and I said, who in here thinks the Me Too movement is good? Some people would raise their hands. That's why we have to critique it. Okay? When you critique a movement, that doesn't mean you're critiquing every single thing in the movement. You can critique Black Lives Matter and still realize that we need to keep fighting against racism. You just realize the movement is not just about that. It's about all these other things. You can critique the Me Too movement and also realize that we should not tolerate sexual assault, but that's not what the movement is just about. It also sneaks in some other things like a feministic Trojan horse, okay? So let's talk about what the movement tries to accomplish. Number one, it seeks to prosecute those who've actually sexually assaulted women, okay? If you have actually sexually assaulted somebody, you should be prosecuted. You should pay for your actions if that is something you have actually done. 
Number two, what does the movement try to accomplish? It allows women to find community and counseling to heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Okay? It allows, uh, you know, a lot of sexual abuse, probably most of it, goes unreported. And so it allows other women to say, I know what you've gone through. I'm sorry. I'm here for you if you want to talk. Okay? I'm here for you if you want to talk. Number three, it highlights how much sexual abuse goes unreported. A lot of sexual abuse goes unreported. Supposedly, something like one in four women have had some type of, uh, you know, have been molested or sexually assaulted at some point in their life, okay? That is a staggeringly high number. A lot of it goes unreported, though. Number four of uh, what the movement seeks to do, it seeks to deter potential sexual predators from sexually assaulting women through the threat of legal reprisal and social exposure, Okay? So it tries, to say, it tries to warn you. It tries, if you're at a party and you're drunk and this other girl is drunk, you're gonna think twice about trying to make a move with her if you realize that this could bring some serious legal consequences to you, okay? And then number five, it is a reminder that sexual assault is sin. This is specifically for Christians. The movement is, not, is explicitly not Christian, but it is a reminder that sexual assault is sin and should not be tolerated by Christians, church leaders, or culture at large. On these five things, we as Christians could say, okay, we, we agree that Christians shouldn't tolerate sexual assault. We agree that people that have actually sexually assaulted somebody should be charged criminally, etc. okay? But I want to now get into what's bad about the Me Too movement. Okay, what's bad about the Me Too movement? Here we go, a few things. I've got like 14 of them. First, it does not distinguish between actual cases of sexual assault and mere allegations of sexual assault. To be accused is to be guilty, okay? The the movement doesn't care about whether or not someone's telling the truth. You're not allowed to question them, according to the movement. If they say that they've been sexually assaulted, you say, I'm sorry that happened to you, and you just believe them, and it doesn't take into account that sometimes those are false allegations of sexual assault. This is what happened after the, uh, you know, Me Too started trending on social media. You got this uh, hashtag, believe women. And the question was, what does that mean? Does it mean believe some women? Because culture already does that. Or are you saying what you seem to be saying, which is believe all women, regardless of whether they have proof, regardless of whether or not they're lying, regardless of whether or not they're just trying to hurt somebody or ruin their career because they're mad at them? And so let me, let me mention, the Bible is actually going to mention this. The Bible doesn't only mention what to do in cases of sexual assault. It mentions what to do in uh, cases of alleged sexual assault that didn't happen. We'll get to that in a second. I want you to see something, though, that I think is really, really powerful. In Genesis 39, there's this story of this woman who is uh, the wife of a man named Potiphar, okay? Potiphar is this leader in Egypt, and his wife, Potiphar's wife, uh, makes a false allegation. She grabs Joseph, a man of God, and says, sleep with me, have sex with me, lie with me. And because Joseph is a righteous man, he kind of shakes out of his jacket to get out of there because he doesn't want to do that. And so she says that he sexually assaulted her. Notice that the Bible here, listen, this is powerful. The Bible here gives us a clear example of a hashtag Me Too movement moment where the woman is falsely accusing the righteous man and he didn't do what was wrong, okay? And guess what? They don't take Joseph's side. After all, who's gonna believe that a a woman wanted to sleep with you and you actually tried to run away? They take the woman's side even though it is a false allegation, Anytime somebody says you should just listen to a woman who claims to be sexually assaulted, you would be supporting Potiphar's wife if that's your generic theory. You can't do that. You have to ask questions. Number two, it does not hold those who make false or misleading allegations of sexual assault responsible for their crime. 
So if you commit sexual assault, that's a big deal to the Me Too movement. But if you falsely accuse somebody, all of a sudden that doesn't matter. Let me read you some things biblically. I think this is important. 1 Timothy 5, 19 says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 20. How well do you know Deuteronomy? Because this is gonna speak to false allegations. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. That is already countercultural, okay? That is already countercultural. The Bible thinks that it is worse to lock up an innocent person than it is to let a guilty person go free. Do you know why? Because that guilty person won't ultimately go free. They will stand before God and God will give a judgment. When you don't believe in an afterlife, when you don't believe in Christ, then you have to have perfect judgment now. So we might as well go ahead and condemn some innocent people as well just to make sure that we've got all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. Okay, it's, the movement is unbiblical in that presupposition. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall his charge be established. If a malicious witness, this isn't somebody that just forgot, this isn't somebody who didn't mean to do this, but somebody who intentionally or, uh, you know, with uh, some gross negligence does this, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. Listen to this next part. If you think you just listen to a woman's story and you don't question it, the judges shall inquire diligently And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother, or you could say sister, falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. When somebody brings a charge against somebody else, this text first of all says you have to be careful when there's just one. Additionally, this text would say you have to ask questions. You have to inquire. And if it turns out that somebody is maliciously not just accidentally, but maliciously, bearing false witness against somebody for a crime, what does the Bible say you do to them? You do to them the penalty that they're trying to get done to this other person. If you falsely accuse someone of murder maliciously, you get tried as a murderer. You falsely accuse somebody of rape maliciously, you get tried as a rapist. That is biblical justice. That is biblical justice. And we hate that because it grinds against our modern sensitivities. But that is what the Bible would say to do. But Zach, what, what about, what about a, a woman who wants to bring up this charge, but she's afraid that it could be a false charge? Then she needs to work through those things with pastors and attorneys and these kind of things. That's why it talks about, uh, you know, talking to the priests and these kind of things. Number three, it refuses to give an objective definition of sexual assault. It refuses to give an objective definition of sexual assault. Let me be very clear. Any sex outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage is sin. So in this lesson, we're not saying as long as it's consensual, God's cool with it, okay? Outside of marriage, God is not cool with consensual sex and he's especially not cool with sexual assault. So you need to keep that in mind. What we're talking about here is just the political and the legal side of the issue. So number three of problems with the Me Too movement, let me repeat this. It refuses to give an objective definition of sexual assault. Even consensual sex can be assault in this movement. The movement believes that even if a woman says she wants to have sex, she is still being sexually assaulted if she, one, didn't really want to have sex, despite her words, two, later regretted that she had sex, or three, felt pressured into having sex even though she said she wanted to. So the movement won't give an objective definition of sexual assault. You can literally, a a woman can say, you know, the movement will say, no means no. Well, sometimes a woman can explicitly say yes, and the movement says that's sexual assault. This movement literally believes that a woman can say, I want to have sex and then have sex with you. And if she felt pressured into it, which you don't know, 
and which she might bring up at a later time, you have raped her. You have sexually assaulted her, okay? And by the way, in case you just think, well, Zach, I think anybody having sex outside of marriage should just get whatever comes to them. The movement holds that this is true for married people too. If you've been married to your wife for five years and then later on she decides, you know what, I actually felt pressured into this marriage. There were times in the marriage I felt pressured into having sex. The movement would say you've sexually assaulted her. Remember, this is not a Christian movement. This is not a Christian movement. In light of it not being a Christian movement, number four, the movement claims that a wife can deny her husband sex indefinitely, despite the biblical command not to do that, 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, and that a woman can get divorced for any reason she chooses because she has sole control over her life and body. So it's not what Jesus talks about, whereas if your spouse commits sexual immorality that you can get divorced, it's she can get divorced at any time because the, her body is her sole property, okay? Now let me be clear. If you're a husband, your body belongs to your wife, if you're a wife, your body belongs to your husband. It's not just your body. You never have a right to sexually assault your spouse, period, okay? There should be no violence. There should be no, you don't have a right to do that. But what the Bible's gonna say is that you are called sometimes to lay down your right to serve your spouse in the area of sex. And it's more of a duty sometimes than, than, than just an enjoyable thing. Sometimes it is more of a duty, okay? But we're gonna talk more about this when we get into 1 Corinthians. Number five, it allows someone to have consensual sex and then later in time decide that the act was actually not consensual. The Me Too movement believes in retroactive sexual assault. Okay, I was one time, me and some other guys were ministering to this woman, not here at Parkway, okay? And this woman claimed that she had been raped. And so we counseled her. We were kind, we were slow, we were gracious, okay? She said she had been raped. And so we said, I am so sorry to hear that. That is so awful. And we then decided that we were going to go talk to her boyfriend, who she said that had raped her. So we went and talked to the boyfriend and said, you have been accused of sexually assaulting this girl. Did you do this? And he said, absolutely not. Of course I did not rape her. I said, what happened? He said, we started kissing. She said, no, I don't know if I want to do this. And then she said with her mouth, no, actually I do, and started taking my pants off. So we went back to the woman and we said, here's what your boyfriend said happened. Is that what happened? And she goes, yeah. And we said, listen, I'm sorry that you've gone through so much trauma on this, but that is not being raped. You told him that the sex was consensual. You were the ones initiating the acts. You see, with this woman, this, this had happened and then some time goes by and then she decides, oh, you know what? I think I was actually raped. You, you don't do retroactive sexual assault, okay? You don't do retroactive sexual assault. Yes, they shouldn't be having sex before marriage, period. I agree with that. But how is the guy supposed to know that sexual assault when the girl changes her mind and says, no, I want to do this, okay? Number six, the movement is dismissive of other forms of sexual assault. Uh-oh, it claims to be about sexual assault and justice, but a lot of times it's not. It primarily just focuses on women claiming to be assaulted by men. Here's some things that it downplays. It will say that it focuses on these things, but it doesn't. So the movement is dismissive of other forms of sexual assault. For example, when men are sexually assaulted, which is one in six, by the way. If you're a guy and you've been molested or sexually assaulted, you need to know that you are not weird, you are not dirty. You need to know that that is actually pretty common. So if you're carrying some sort of weird baggage or identity uh, around this issue, you don't need to. It's also dismissive of when women are sexually assaulted by other women. Notice it plays that side down. 
It's only when the male does the act that it's bad, okay? Or at least that's what gets focused on. It, it, it ignores a lot of times when women are sexually assaulted by other women, as happens in the homosexual, transgender, and prison communities. In fact, the levels of sexual assault are much higher in the gay and transgender communities than in heterosexual relationships. 46% of bisexual or gay women have been raped compared to 17% of heterosexual women, okay? So again, the movement's not just about protecting victims. It also is pushing a political agenda. Number seven of problems with the Me Too movement. It leads to further division of men and women. It leads to a further division of men and women. Okay? So let, let me say it this way. Here at Parkway, one of the things our pastors do is we follow what's called the Billy Graham rule. Okay? What Billy Graham would do is he would say, I just won't be alone with another woman so that people cannot charge me with, uh, you know, with, with something that I didn't do. It was called the Billy Graham rule. People recently called it the Mike Pence rule. And culture freaks out. That is so sexist. That is so mean. That is so bad that you won't meet with a woman one-on-one. Here's why we don't meet with women one-on-one. If we meet with you at Parkway, we will have someone else in the room typically. Okay, or someone else in the hall at least with the door open. But typically we, will just, we won't meet with you one-on-one, not because we're gonna do anything bad and not because you are gonna do anything bad, but because there's always a potential that there could be someone who tries to accuse someone of you know, saying something they didn't say or doing something that they didn't do. So if I meet with a woman, I typically want to meet with her with someone else. Maybe it's her spouse. Maybe it's one of her friends. Maybe it's another staff member at Parkway. Not because I don't trust her. I mean, there are many women I meet with that I absolutely trust. I just want to put myself above reproach so that nobody can bring a charge against me that would ruin my marriage, my career. It would hurt the church. Even if it was completely unfounded, to be accused in the Me Too movement is to be guilty. And so we need to be cautious when it comes to that. Number eight, this one's really hard. So please give me grace as I say this to quote one pastor. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. The Me Too movement does not hold to a biblical definition of rape. Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here's what it's saying in the Old Testament. There's, there's more around this text. If a woman is being sexually assaulted, here's what she has to do biblically, okay? She has to do whatever she is able to do to try to make it clear that that is rape, to try to make it clear that that is rape, to try to make it clear that that is sexual assault. She has to try to make that clear. So if she's being sexually assaulted and she can cry out for help is what it means, she needs to do that. She needs to be screaming, rape, help, help me. She needs to be yelling that out. And then you can say this was not consensual, obviously, because you were yelling the whole time. Now, sometimes you can't yell. Let's say that there is an assailant and he puts a gun to your head. He puts a knife to your throat. You're not able to yell, okay? You might not even be able to fight back. That's a different situation. But biblically, the idea is this. Are you doing whatever you're able to, to make clear that you're either trying to get out of this situation or you're trying to get others to come help you. Sometimes you can't do anything. I admit that. Sometimes though, you can do a lot of things because it should always be very clear that what's happening is sexual assault. Does everybody understand? So a lot of what gets called sexual assault in the Me Too movement is not that. It's a girl who's drunk, who's with her boyfriend and they start fooling around and then she has sex and she didn't really want to, but she didn't say it. And then she comes back and says that was sexual assault. That doesn't work biblically. It has to be clear. There should never be somebody 
who, there should never be somebody who sexually assaulted someone that doesn't know that that's what they did, okay? Where someone comes back 10 years later and says, you sexually assaulted me, and you're like, what are you talking about? It should always be very clear. It can't be the kind of baby it's cold outside Christmas song, right, where he's trying to pressure her to stay, but she also wants to say, because she says, I'd like to say no, 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 sir. At least I'm gonna say that I tried. Meaning, I'm saying this for social reasons, but I don't really wanna leave. It can't be like that. It can't be this kind of blurry, gray, whatever. In the Bible, it's clear. Did she try to get away? Did she try to get out of that? Did she, or was it not clear? Was it not clear? Number nine. It offers no actual solution regarding how to prevent sexual assault in the future. It doesn't offer a solution. It just says, there shouldn't be any more sexual assault. Men, stop sexually assaulting women. Well, we agree with that. Who doesn't know that sexually assaulting people is wrong, okay? It doesn't offer an actual solution. Here's the actual solution. People need Christ. They need the gospel. The heart of man will not be good. The heart of man will sexually objectify the other gender because our hearts are broken with sin, It's only through Christ that you actually have a solution. Additionally, if you want some practical solutions, here's what you do. Don't let your daughter go out with some sleazy guy when she's underage. Don't let your kids spend the night at people's homes that you don't know and trust that have some creepy uncle that lives there, okay? Don't let younger kids be around older kids without supervision when there's a huge age gap between them. Outlaw pornography, because when there's pornography, the rates of sexual assault go way through the roof. There's some practical stuff for you, okay? But the movement doesn't offer a real solution. It just says men shouldn't do this, and then if you're accused of it, you must have done it. Number 10, the movement has explicitly aligned itself with other feministic and pro-abortion movements such as Planned Parenthood. To get an abortion is empowering according to the feminist movement today, okay? Remember, if you think being a feminist just means you think that men and women are equal, that's not what the term means today. You are 100 years behind how uh, culture has moved on. Number 11, To ask for details when someone claims to have been assaulted is said to be unloving or unkind. The movement claims that you should just sympathize with the person without finding out if what they are saying is true. I have seen a bunch of churches do this, and listen to me, this is absolutely satanic, where they say, do not question someone's story. That is the opposite of what the Bible says to do. You want to sympathize with the victim, but you don't know who the victim is until you've collected the data, until you've collected the facts. You don't sit down when someone says they've been assaulted and you just say, I won't ask any questions. You have been assaulted. I'm sorry. Because if she's falsely accusing someone of sexual assault, guess what you've just done? You've sympathized with the villain. You've sympathized with the victimizer. You've sympathized with the oppressor. You must ask questions. The Bible tells us to, to, to investigate it diligently that we are to look into these things to see who's right. I don't know who the victim is until I've collected the data. And if it turns out that the woman's story is true, then I will be on her side. And I will say, you are the victim. I'm sorry this happened to you. But if I find out she's lying, then I'm not on her side. I'm on the guy's side. I'm saying, you are the victim. I'm sorry that you were falsely accused of sexual assault and it ruined your life. And it ruined your life. Number 12, problems with the Me Too movement. It does not hold women morally accountable for sexual activity outside of marriage, immodesty in clothing, promiscuity, or seduction, okay? Now, let me be clear. If somebody sexually assaults somebody, that is always wrong, period. You cannot blame it. You you cannot blame it on that person that you sexually assaulted. You can't say because she was wearing immodest clothing or because she was flirty, she made me rape. No, 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 no. You are responsible for your actions, period, okay? So hear that first. 
But you also need to hear that there are more sins going on in this scenario than just sexual assault. There's also the sin of immodesty. There's also the sin of you know, promiscuity. There's also these other sins and you have to address all the sins even though one is worse in this case, in this case, sexual assault. Number 13, it doesn't take into account how easy it is for the victim of sexual assault to misidentify who they think assaulted them. Okay, this one's huge. You would think that if you were sexually assaulted by somebody, you would absolutely easily be able to identify them, but that is not the case. And so that a lot of people get falsely accused of things they didn't do. I don't know if you've seen, uh, well, let me read you this quick statistic. According to the Innocence Project, which is this group of attorneys that helps uh, get people who are wrongly convicted out of prison, According to the Innocence Project, of the 367 exonerees who were wrongly accused, listen to this, 69% involved eyewitness misidentification. This included many sexual assault cases. You would think that it would be easy to identify the person who raped you, but it is not. Because of the trauma, because many years go by, because of subtle suggestions by the detectives, because of subtle suggestions by counselors and psychologists, you can actually think that somebody sexually assaulted you when they were nowhere near you. I don't know if you ever watch America's Got Talent. It's a great show. They had a contestant recently named Archie Williams and he went to prison in Louisiana for 37 years because a white woman was raped and it turns out that he never did it. He was innocent the entire time and it wasn't until DNA evidence exonerated him that he got out, okay? He's one of those innocent project kind of, kind of people. So we saw this also during the uh, false allegations brought by uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford against Supreme Court candidate Brett Kavanaugh, okay? So Christine Ford brings all these stories about how she was sexually assaulted. And by the way, she might have been sexually assaulted. If you watch her testimony, it seems like she might actually be, uh, had, had been victimized by somebody. It just didn't seem to be Brett Kavanaugh. And so it's easy to misidentify who has actually sexually assaulted you, but the Me Too movement doesn't care at all about that. Okay, what happened to her? She, she ruined Kavanaugh's reputation and life and there's no recompense. There's no recompense to Kavanaugh. Number 14, lastly, and maybe most importantly, the Me Too movement is unchristian in its worldview. It does not put forward the gospel as the solution to sexual assault. Like most social justice movements, it just hopes the problem goes away or acts like we can have utopia this side of the second coming. Doesn't offer a real solution and ignores that you, you need Christ to make this work. How can you reconcile different races? Only in Christ. That's how the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is torn down. How can you reconcile men and women? Again, only in Christ. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Christ is the ultimate solution between men and women. Christ is the ultimate solution to the person that has an evil heart that wants to sexually assault, okay? But the movement ignores, obviously, the Christian element. Let me give you three concluding thoughts. First of all, what a movement claims to be about is often not what it's really about, okay? The reason we don't like Black Lives Matter as an organization is not because we don't like black people. We like black people. That's why we don't like Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter does not help black people. It hurts them, okay? When you say defund the police, guess what happens? The police get defunded in inner cities and urban areas, and then guess what happens? More black people die. By defunding the police, it kills more black people. You understand that, right? So the movement does not help black people, it hurts them. That's why we don't like the, the movement, not that we don't like helping black people. The same thing is true with the Me Too movement. We are very much against sexual assault. We want to help women, we want to encourage women, we want to empower women. 
That's why we don't like the movement. When the movement takes everything as true, including false allegations, then no one will listen to the true allegations of sexual assault because they think, here's another woman that is just saying this and I'm gonna get falsely accused, okay? Same thing is true with Antifa. A group that is socialistic, against freedom of speech, against people owning guns, and wants everyone in America to think exactly the same way in this weirdly nationalistic-centric postmodern view is actually fascist. But as long as they put the word anti in front of it, well, then you can't critique them. If I ever wanted to create some sort of weird terrorist organization, do you know what I would call it? I would call it loving people. And I would kill people, and I would burn down buildings, and when someone was against me, I'd say, how could you stand against loving people? How could you not be for loving people? Just, just hashtag it. Just hashtag loving people, you bigot. You see, our culture is too dumb to realize that what an organization stands for is not the same as its name. We, we can't make, make that even most elementary step for some reason. So keep in mind what a movement claims to be about is often not what that movement's actually about. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Number two, most left-leaning social justice movements propose no actual solutions that would work, right? So if you're big on the environmental issue, which Christians, again, should take care of the environment, but it's here for us, not the other way around. But uh, what they'll do is they'll say, okay, we need to make the earth more healthy. And you say, okay, how do we actually do that practically? Oh, we just shut down all the economies and industry around the world. Okay, well, great. Then millions of people will die. That's not a real solution. If you shut down everything just in America, we make up, you know, what, less than 4% of the world's pollution anyway. Nothing changes. So there's not an actual solution. It's just a complaining without a solution. Or I remember when there was a, uh, there was a shooting, a school shooting recently, and so students protested by walking out of school to march against gun violence. My first question is, who's for gun violence? What are you actually marching for? There's no proposed solution. Uh, and two, the students are doing it to be selfish so they can get out of class. They're not just doing it because they're so politically involved. And it doesn't give an actual solution. You wanna stop school shootings? Arm teachers, the end. Anything short of that, they will just keep happening, okay? And so the, a lot of things, uh, when Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, right, during the uh, national anthem, uh, he says that he's doing it not because he's trying to be unpatriotic, but rather because he's trying to uh, highlight police brutality. Well, there's a few problems with that. One is that the, the, the thing you're doing, the kneeling during the national anthem, is not connected to police brutality, so it's confusing at best. But two, what's the actual solution? How does taking a knee make someone not commit a violent crime and therefore need to be shot by the police? There's no connection there, okay? So you'll find that most of these left-leaning movements don't actually offer a solution. Lastly, let me end with something pastorally as well. If you have been sexually assaulted, here's what you need to hear me say. You've been actually biblically sexually assaulted. Here's what you need to hear. I am sorry that that happened to you. You have been hurt. You have been victimized. That should have never happened. You've been hurt. You've been victimized. That should have never happened. I am sorry that happened to you. Your hope is in Christ as well. Christ died to give you a new identity, not just so that you would be forgiven for, for, for your sins, so that you would be cleansed from sins that other people have done to you. Your identity in Christ is not as a sinner, though you sin all the time. Your identity is in Christ, and that's true whether or not you've committed an evil action like sexual assault. There's forgiveness for you as well if you've done that. Or if you're the victim of sexual assault, that is not your identity. Your identity is never being a victim. Your identity is that you are clean, you are spotless, and you are pure in Christ. Let's pray before we do questions in the Q&A. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We pray that you would just guide us in this. I confess this is a difficult, frustrating lesson. I pray where if I've not been sensitive enough that you forgive me. 
I pray that if I've pulled punches where I should have said things stronger that you forgive me. Your word is perfect, but we are not. So would you help us? We pray that Parkway would be a place where there's not these kind of allegations. We pray that Parkway would be a place where we love and care for one another, that we, as the Bible would say, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.